this week. Uh, we're in chapter 7, then we're going to cover the, ver- the first uh, uh, 13 verses. So John 7, 1 through 13. That's what we're going to cover. I'm going to read these verses together for us. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for He did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill Him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to Him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. When the Jews sought him at the feast, then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time this morning. Father, thank you for the cool air this morning and the bright sunshine. Uh, We pray that as the sunshine uh, lightens our day, we pray that your word will uh, shine a bright light into our souls and our minds uh, this morning. And uh, we pray that you will change us because we're here today. And ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Dr. Sproul started this section uh, saying that uh, in this selection we just read, he finds uh, one of these verses as one of the most troubling texts in all the New Testament. Uh, we find that verse in verse 5 when John tells us about Jesus' brothers. Says for, John says, almost in a, in a, in a parenthetical way as he's, as he's talking this, it's just like a, in parentheses, John says, for even his brothers did not believe in him at this time. And we saw... Uh, last week, uh, because of the hard sayings that we went over, right? We talked about about those. Some some sayings of Jesus were hard because they were hard to understand, and then some sayings were hard because they were just hard to hear about what he was saying, right? Um, but we we know that uh, last week that many of the disciples left him and followed him no more. They never returned to him. That's what we know. Now. With that fact, and, and picking up uh, from chapter 6 last week uh, and going now to chapter 7, we start to learn a little bit more about Jesus' uh, isolation and even His uh, loneliness. And if you looked at it from, from one perspective, you know, one might think, well, this is really a low point in Jesus' uh, ministry. Uh, and that's one way to look at it. But we know that, um, we know that things have definitely changed for him. His band of brothers is, is smaller than what, than what it used to be. Some people, uh, when we get, these, we get these verses here, some people will argue, you probably heard it, you've heard of the argument for the perpetual virginity of Mary, right? Um, some argue for that, but this, clear, this text clearly teaches that Jesus had younger brothers. Uh, one of them was James. We know James, James the Just, as he was known. Um, we do know, of course, uh, more about him than some of the others. He authored uh, the epistle 
in the same name. In the New Testament, we have the book of James that he wrote. Um, the New Testament shows us that James and his, although, although here, we're, we're, John mentions they're not believers, okay, in this, this timeline. But what we do know is that James and his, his other brothers be, did become believers, okay? They became believers uh, shortly after the resurrection and the ascension. So that's really good news, right? Uh, James, what about James? Well, James eventually becomes a pillar in the early church. Uh, if you remember, he even presided over the Council of Jerusalem. You remember that council? We studied about that in the book of Acts. You remember when circumcision was um, the requirement? There were some that said, okay, the Gentiles are coming in, but they've got to be circumcised. And what? They said, no, this the apostles teaching, no, that is not a requirement. And so they had the Council of Jerusalem uh, to settle that matter. And of course, they determined that was not required. So James presided over that. Um, so, but even here, again, this timeline, uh, Jesus' brothers had not yet believed in him as the Messiah. They had, it, you know, when you think about it, they've they've grown up with him. They've grown up around him. Uh, they have uh, followed his ministry, uh, but they had not yet come to faith at this point. Um, so John tells us here after that the many left them in chapter uh, six, starting in verse one, he says. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. The hostility was growing, so he is in the, the northern region. He stayed uh, in, in north in Galilee, and, and as far as the timeline goes, because this is this is helpful, I think. So most likely, there was about a seven-month gap between chapter six and seven. Because seven months have passed between chapter 6 and now into chapter 7 in uh, John's account. How do we know that? Well, chapter 6 occurred around, if you remember, the Passover, right? Which would have been in April. Okay, chapter 7 now is talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, okay, which is at hand, which would have occurred in October. Okay, so so we have uh, a a seven-month gap here. Now, Now, John has given us no information about that time that has passed. He's given us nothing. But you, but you remember, when we, when we talked about the introduction of this gospel, John's, John's uh, purpose in writing this is not to present a timeline or chronologically um, uh, account of Jesus' uh, ministry. Right? That's not his, his point. What was his point? Who remembers? Because he tells us later in the book. Right? His point in writing this gospel was what? To prove that Jesus was the Messiah. That was his his point, right? He was the Messiah, and he was the Son of God, and he also wanted to show how the world reacted to him. That's the point of John in writing this gospel. So we know that the time of the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles is here. What do we know about that? Well, it's a seven-day feast. It's a seven-day celebration of God's provision in the wilderness wandering, the the Feast of Tabernacles was associated with the Old Testament teaching and, the, uh, and associated with the, the gathering of the harvest, okay? That's why it was in October. And according to the, uh, the historian Josephus, this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, was the most popular of the primary three. Okay, the primary three, the three principal feasts were Passover, uh, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. So this one was the most popular. Okay, among uh, the Jews, how did they 
celebrate. Of course, they had to gather. They had to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Uh, People who were living in the rural areas, when they came to town, they would build these makeshift structures, like little tents, right? Uh, And they would make them, uh, and they would live in that for the week. Just makeshift kind of shelter, that this little tent that they would build in the city. Um, hence the name, uh, it's sometimes called the Feast of Booths. Okay, that's another name of the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, the, the town dwellers, so if you lived in the town, if you were a Jew, then you would put up a, a similar structure up on your roof. Okay, and you would live in that for the week. So that, that's one way they observed uh, this, this feast. Uh, now, what we do know, of course, it is a ceremonial feast, so uh, all the Jews are required to attend, right, to travel to Jerusalem and celebrate. So when we think about that, and we think about Jesus' f- completely fulfilling the law, then what? As a Jew, it was what? He was obligated to go. That's his duty, to go and to attend uh, the feast. So that's a little bit about the feast by way of introduction. So uh, uh, verses 3 and 4, let's continue. It says, His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. Uh, Dr. Spruill said it's, it seems as though his, his brothers here were his self-appointed campaign managers. That's kind of... That's a really good modern analogy, isn't it? That's kind of what it seems like. They're self-appointed. They're the campaign managers. And their advice was what? Their advice was all about one thing. It was about getting attention. That's what their advice here is, right? About not doing anything in secret. You, you need to be known openly. You need more attention, right? That's, that's what their advice. And I guess, you know, if you were running a political campaign... Um, you probably wouldn't be very successful if you were never in the public, right? <laughs> if you never went anywhere and and uh, and talked with the public or engaged with the public, you probably wouldn't be very successful. But of course, this is not a uh, political campaign. So basically, his brothers were saying something like this: "You're never going to if you stay up here in Galilee, you're never going to get anywhere, right? You have to go if you want to be king. You got to go into the city." If you want to be the Messiah, you've got to make yourself known. You have to go down to Jerusalem and work your works there, Jesus. That's what they're, that's what they're telling Him. That's what they're telling Jesus. That was their uh, advice to Him or their recommendation as His campaign managers. Well, remember in John's Gospel, we studied His first miracle, uh, turning the water into wine at Cana. You remember the situation, right? They had... Uh, at the wedding feast, they had run out of wine, and Jesus' mother came to him and said, hey, they've run out of wine. Um, and what was his response? Remember Jesus' response to his mother. He said, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Okay, remember that response. Well, Jesus reacts in a very similar manner here. They're asking him to... To go into uh, Jerusalem, he has a very similar reaction. We see it, uh, our response, and we see it in verses 6 through 8. He says to, their, to his campaign managers, right? He says, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time is not fully come. 
In other words, Jesus was telling them, I will go to Jerusalem, but I'm going to decide when I go to Jerusalem. Uh, you, mean, you mean go ahead? Uh, my hour has not yet come. That's what He is telling them. Of course, just as Jesus rebuked His mother at the wedding feast, right? What happened there? He rebuked her about my hour has not yet come. But what did He do with the water? He turned it into wine, didn't He? Remember, it was really, really good wine. And it was a lot of it. Right? So, what happened here? Similarly, almost in the same manner, after implying that He would not go to the feast, He goes anyway. But what? But the detail that John provides us. He goes in secret. Verse 10, it says, uh, John tells us, uh, but when his brothers had grown up, gone up, then he also went up to the feast. Not openly, but as it were, in secret. Well, John explains to us why uh, Jesus goes uh, in secret. The, the Jewish authorities clearly are out to get him. They um, are on the lookout for him. And we can assume here, it's a safe assumption, that uh, the Father had, here again, we're talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, the, the assumption here is that the Father has directed Jesus uh, and, and to permit him to go into Jerusalem. It is time. It is required of you. You need to be there because it's a requirement of a Jew. So we can assume that safely. Uh, so Jesus leaves Galilee and guess what? He will never return to Galilee, will he? He never returns. This is the last time that he is in uh, Galilee before the cross. Anyway, verse 11, it says, Then Jesus sought him at the feast, and he said, Where is he? So he's, he's probably already there. He's in secret. Uh, but what do you get by that verse? It, he, he's the talk of the town. He's, he's not even there openly, right? Um, but everyone's talking about Him. Everyone wants to know where is Jesus. In verse 12 it says, And there was much complaining among the people concerning Him. Some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, He deceives the people. Rumor mill, right? You ever been a part of a rumor mill? When people are saying all kind of stuff? Uh, if you haven't, uh, bless you. Because it's a... It's a mess, um, it, and it, it's hard to deal with because all these people. There's a lot of talk, and there's a lot of whispering. Okay, as we, as John tells us, they didn't talk openly, right? There's a lot of whispering. So what you can just imagine if you're walking through town uh, and you'd see groups of people gathered, just kind of huddled up, talking quietly. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever been in a and maybe in a social engagement and um, you know you just observe people? They're kind of sitting over to themselves. They're not. They're being quiet and they're whispering. Uh, maybe if you walk up, they suddenly you know change the subject or, or something. You know, kind of kind of a similar environment here, right? But with thousands and thousands of Jews, okay, in in, in Jerusalem. So so they're all talking about him. They're they're spreading rumors. Some he's really good. Some no, absolutely not. He deceives the people. He's a liar. Basically, is what they're saying. Verse 13 says, However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. So, clearly, this time frame has passed between six and seven, the seven months. Clearly, we see the Jewish leader's hostility has not gotten weaker. It's, it's stronger. Okay, It is clearly stronger in the, in the time that he has been in Galilee. 
Now, as to the feast, what happens at the feast, Lord willing, we will get to that next week. Uh, But for now, we're going to look at the unbelief of the brothers. That is, as as we introduced this section, that was uh, Dr. Sproul's comment. This is one of the most troubling things that I've seen in the New Testament. So we're going to spend uh, the time we have left looking at that particular uh, issue. So John tells us that even though his brothers wanted him to go to Jerusalem, they were not yet believers. Now, in a very real sense, in a very real sense, they had done the same thing to Jesus, or their response to Jesus uh, was the same attitude as the other disciples had done. Okay, They were following Jesus for what He could provide. At this point. Okay, so they are guilty of the same type of attitude that these other disciples were were following Jesus uh, for, about what he could provide. Now he adds, um, Dr. Sproul adds in his commentary, in this case, he thinks they really are of the same attitude. They think, okay, Jesus, you need to go into Jerusalem, we need to make you king, and you're going to deliver us from the Roman occupation. That's the biggest deal, right? Remember, we've talked about that. That's a common... Uh, thought uh, with the Jews at this time who are about the Messiah, right? They don't like Jesus because Jesus wasn't doing what they wanted him to do, right? He wasn't he wasn't bringing in uh, or, or acting like a um, someone who was going to, to to run out the Romans, and so they didn't really like that. But they these men, in fact, his own brothers probably had the same idea. So it's obvious at this point in his ministry. They really don't understand Jesus' mission and why He's here. They really don't understand it, why Jesus, the Son of God, has come to earth. So they really don't know who He is, who He really is, do they, at this point? They don't really know who He really is. They saw Him as others, as a secular deliverer. One who would who would run out the Romans. So so in their mind, okay, if if that's the attitude, if that's what I think you're here to do, Jesus, I've grown up with you, I've known you my whole life, and you're here to do this. Then it, again, I'm your campaign manager. I want you to be famous, right? I want to put you up uh, on a pedestal and let everybody see all the works you're doing. So in in that mind frame, to, for them, the sooner he got to Jerusalem, the better. That's, that's where they are. They want him to go down to. So that's, that's what they're trying to urge him to do. We want you to be in the spotlight. We want you to, to do what you're here to do. But the unfortunate piece is they've just got it all wrong, right? They have their own agenda for Jesus. Again, these were people, his own family, his own brothers, who had been with him day after day uh, in childhood, but also now in his ministry. In fact, I mean, these, these particular brothers, okay, in the specific sense, were blood brothers. These were his immediate family. Um, they, of all people, they thought they knew him. Don't you think you know your brothers and sisters pretty well? Think you know them pretty well, right? You live with them? You know, they said, nobody knows you like your family, right? You want to know about me, you need to ask... My wife. You need to ask Karen, right? If you want to know what I'm really like, right? Well, that's, this, they had that relationship. They, they knew each other. Uh, or at least they thought they were on his team. But as we can see, they did have their own agenda. They had 
more of a political agenda. They wanted him to go into the city and to reveal his power. And Jesus, go into the city. They're all there. Show them what you can do. Right? That's kind of what, that's where they're coming from. So by this, we, we do know that they are still unbelievers. They are outside of the kingdom of God at this point. Dr. Sproul said it, it always happens. He's experienced it in his ministry. Um, we know Dr. Sproul served for many, many years. And I'm sure some of you, I know probably of our own pastor, and some of you, especially our, maybe our officers, our elders, have, have experienced this where someone has come to them sometime along the way and ask a burning question. They ask this question, how do I know that I'm saved? That's a burning question, right? That uh, Again, I don't know if uh, anybody's ever asked our pastor that, but I'm sure at somewhere along the way that's happened. right? If you're in ministry, somebody has, has come to you, how can I know that I'm saved? That's an important question, isn't it? It is an important question. It's a serious question. Very serious question. So Dr. Spruill said, in response to that question, I ask three questions. The first question is this, to the person asking, how, how do I know if I'm really saved? The first question is, do you love Christ perfectly? Now if I ask you that today, what would be your answer? Do you love Christ perfectly? No. We do not love Christ perfectly. Because if the reality is, if you or I loved Christ perfectly, we wouldn't sin, would we? Think about it. We would not sin if we loved Him perfectly. That's a reality, isn't it? It's a reality. So the first question, how can I, how can I know that I'm saved? Do you love Christ perfectly? No. The answer is always no. That's what's brought Nobody's ever told me Yes. The answer is always no, right? Okay, second question. Do you love Christ as much as you ought to love Him? I'm getting shaking heads, no. Right answer. Okay, right answer. Why? Because if the answer to the first question is no, then the answer to the second question must also be no, Right? Because why? How should we? How ought we love Christ? Perfectly. That's the standard, right? Love Him perfectly. That's how we ought to. So the first question, the answer is no. Second question is the same answer. No. I do not love Christ as I ought to. And the third question. How can I know that I am saved? The third question is, do you love Christ at all? Now, I'm asking you, do you love Christ at all? I see grins and I see nodding heads. Praise the Lord. Right? That's the right answer for a believer. Why? Because the answer is yes. That's absolutely wonderful. Because guess what? In your natural state, as a fallen human being, you have no capacity to love Christ at all. That's the truth, isn't it? That is the truth. 
if if you have this question, and if if you have when you get through these steps, right? You said no, no, and you said yes. If you have any affection at all for Christ, that is proof positive that you are saved. Isn't that wonderful? That is wonderful. Yes, it is. Who said yes? Yes, it is. You can say yes and amen and amen. Right? It is proof positive. If you have any affection at all for Christ, then you are saved. And that is something to do what? To rejoice in. Isn't it? That is, that is something to rejoice in. And when you, uh, this question comes up, you can remind yourself, I, I'm saved. I, I can rejoice in that. Why? Because... I have a love for Christ. Do I do it like I ought to? Absolutely not. Do I love Him perfectly? Most definitely not. But I love Him. Wonderful praise the Lord, right? Jump and and sing and clap, right? Now, the, a follow-up question that Dr. Sproul said he would ask, in a lot of cases, he would add a major qualifier. So if established... You have a love for Christ. That's wonderful. You're saved. This one qualifier here said, I would ask, do you love the biblical Christ? Do you love Jesus as He is revealed in the Bible? That's an important question. You answered the third question right. Praise the Lord, you're saved. Next, the qualifier, do you love Jesus Christ as He is revealed in the Bible? Sadly, uh, in the world that we live in, this is a necessary question, isn't it? Because there are many people who have a belief in Jesus that has little or even nothing to do with the man that is described in the Bible. That's a sad reality today. Why? Well, the Jesus of the Bible is under attack, isn't he? Just like the Jews... Were under attack, or, or Jesus was under attack by the Jews when he was here. The G- Jesus of the Bible is still under attack today. The biblical Jesus. How do they attack him? Well, they attack him by distorting how we understand who he was. In, in, in the 19th century, we saw uh, the liberal critics come to look at Jesus. And they would deny what is revealed in the Scripture. They would basically describe Jesus as what? Who remembers the, the, the famous word? He was a good... What was the other word? A good moral teacher. Doesn't that sound good? Oh, man. Yes, that's good. Jesus was a good moral teacher. Sounds wonderful, right? It, it tickles your ears. You know, It makes me feel good. Jesus was a good moral teacher. And that's it. That was their liberal interpretation of the Jesus of the Bible. Similarly, we saw with the birth of this existential theology that they would label Jesus as an existential teacher. He was very good at it. Now, if you, you know, existential theology, it's a, it's a complicated word, but basically it just, that theology taught that real faith and spiritual meaning cannot be found in organized religions, the church. Okay, so your faith was individual. That's kind of what it's experiential. Okay, that's what existential theology teaches. So you basically, you you don't need the Bible. You don't need the church. You just need yourself. You know who is Jesus to you? 
And then that's your truth. Okay, that's what existential theology teaches. And I, there's more to that, but that's in general what it teaches. It's an individual faith. Is that true? Is that the truth according to what we see revealed in the Word? No, it's not. That is not the truth. Jesus is a good moral teacher, isn't He? Uh, he's much more than that, isn't He? Um, the, 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 these descriptors, this, this good moral teacher, this great existential uh, teacher, this redeemer, this, this, um, this freedom fighter that some may call Him is not the Jesus we find in the Bible. It is not the Jesus we find in the Bible. If we could have asked Jesus' brothers, do you believe in your brother? Do you believe in your brother? They would probably have said, well, of course we believe in him. Yeah, of course we do. Why else would we want him to go to Jerusalem and make him known? Well, they wanted to see Jesus' ministry grow and expand. Just like John the Baptist. What did John the Baptist say? I must decrease, he must increase. That was his words about Jesus, right? Nevertheless, the word tells us here, John tells us that Jesus' brothers were unbelievers. And so it's at this point we need to ask ourselves, is the Jesus we believe in the real Jesus? This is the Jesus that is revealed here in the Scripture. I think most of us, you know, we're, again, good Presbyterians. We study our Bible. Um, I think we have a good understanding of what the real Jesus is. But something that all of us do, something that all of us are guilty of, is we are disappointed in Jesus sometimes because we expect things of Him that are not in His agenda. And you and I do that on a regular basis. We do that. We have our own agenda. Maybe it's personal. Maybe it's uh, professional. And we expect Him, as we lift up prayers to Him, to do what we want Him to do. We want Him to be a part of our agenda. We come to Him from the wrong angle, don't we? We, we approach Him from the completely wrong angle. We don't approach Him as the Lord of the universe and the Savior of my soul. We approach Him as a lot of these people did. As someone who, man, He's powerful. He can do tricks. Y'all want to see? That's true, isn't it? We approach Him with the wrong attitude sometimes. We, we can become like His brothers who looked only at Him for what they could get. And what were they looking for? At this, and their mind was what? It was worldly power and success. That's what they were looking for. This is the time. He's the Messiah. We're going to run out the Romans. We're going to set Him up as King. And we'll have power and success. Now who doesn't want power and success? All of us in our hearts, some in our fallen hearts crave that, don't we? We do. But is that why Jesus was here? Absolutely not. He was not here for that. Not for in the sense that they wanted. Not earthly power. Is He the most powerful human being to ever walk the planet? Yes. Absolutely. 
He is. But his agenda is completely different from what they had expected. What we do know, and we see it, we've talked about liberal theology. We've talked about its effect and its attack on the church. The, the popular, what's popular today is, is, is the, um, is, is the prosperity gospel. It's still alive, right? Those, there are many teachers, and there are some that are very famous. There are many that are packing out churches, right? There are thousands and thousands and thousands who are in churches who are not teaching biblical truth, who care more about entertainment than anything else, and giving the people what they want, their ears want to hear, right? They want to hear these tickling things, these things that tickle the ear. They want to hear the, the prosperity gospel. It basically says, you come to Jesus, okay, with any expectation, and just like magic, He's going to do it for you. Name it and claim it, right? That's it. Name it and claim it, buddy. It's all about you. Now don't, in, in our fallen nature, that's exactly what we want to hear, isn't it? It's all about me. It's all about me. Well, what we know is that that teaching, that gospel, that false gospel, okay, it, it, it is false. We have to reject it. We have to completely reject it. Um, the only thing, and, and this was uh, Dr. Sproul's comment, he says, the only thing we can guarantee that Jesus is going to give you is forgiveness. He's going to give you forgiveness, reconciliation with the Father, and eternal life. Now, what's more important than that? Is a good job more important than that? Is a nice house more important than that? Is a good-looking wife more important than that? Handsome husband? No. College degrees? No. Medals on your chest? Is that more important than all those things? No. None of those things are more important than that. Forgiveness from God, reconciliation to the Father and eternal life. Wow. That's what's guaranteed to everyone who puts their faith in Him. Isn't it? That is the guarantee. What else can we ask of Him? What else of those things compares to that? Really nothing. Nothing else really compares to that. Dr. Sproul said, I think doctrine, truth, and biblical ethics are vitally important. But Christianity is all about Jesus. The biblical Jesus. The one that's revealed in the Scriptures. I, I've said it a different way. Something, you know, Dr. Sproul said, all, all these things are important. Uh, I think doctrine is important, which it is, right? We, we hold that at this church. Truth is important. Biblical ethics are vitally important. But Christianity is all about Jesus. I've said it a different way. I've said it this way. I pose it in the form of a question. What's the first thing you think about when you think about heaven? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about heaven? If it's not Jesus, you have completely missed it. Okay? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about heaven? If it's not Jesus, 
You've completely missed it. Christianity is all about Jesus. It's that's the first, when when you think about heaven. I I don't know what else is there, right? The Bible tells us it's absolutely amazing. The Bible gives us examples and things that maybe we can kind of you know put images to. But it tells us also what that it's way way better than you can ever think ever imagine. That's what it tells us, right? I, I want one thing in heaven. I want Jesus to be there. And I know He is going to be there. And that's the, that's the first person I want to see when I get to heaven. I want to see Jesus. I want to fall at His feet and love Him forever. Thank you for what you did for me. A sinner who deserves hell forever. Whatever or what other ideas, okay, about Jesus that you may have, if they don't correspond to the Jesus we find in the Bible, then you need to lay them aside. You need to lay them aside. You must believe on this Jesus as He is revealed in the Scripture, the One who has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ and revealed to us through His Word the Bible that we have. Anything else, you need to lay it aside. Let me pray for us as the bell has rung. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for our time. We thank You that we had a little extra time and a lesson just to discuss some things that are on our hearts. Father, we, we thank You for that. We pray that You would uh, continue to use Your Word to shape us, Father, to search us out. And uh, we just give You praise because You are Heavenly Father. You are uh, Christ is our Savior, our Lord, and we can rejoice in the hope of salvation. We ask these things in Your name. Amen.